Okay, let's take our Bible and let's turn to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. And uh, we want to look at this psalm that, that I don't know if a topical preacher who is not a consecutive expository preacher would ever pick this chapter to preach on. But because I'm preaching through the book of the Bible and I'm preaching through every psalm, we've landed at Psalm 58. And uh, whether or not it's comfortable or uncomfortable, it's from the Lord and it's for our good this evening. I titled the psalm, Praying for the Punishment of the Wicked. Let's read it, and then we'll pray together and look into it. Psalm 58. It is a meek tom of David. Verse 1. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No. In your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. O oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. For the choir director Set to Al Tosh Heth. Father, we come to a portion of your word that is indeed profitable to make us wise in conforming us more into the image of Christ. Teach us from your most holy word, we pray. Amen. Beloved church family, you know this, but I, I need to say it as an introduction to the psalm. We are living in very dark days. We are living in very depraved days. I remember reading, it was years ago, a magazine said this, quote, There is a destructive sense that nothing is true and that everything is permitted in our day. That's kind of the thinking. It's kind of the air of our society. Nothing is true and everything is permitted. That kind of sums up a good bit of our society. From every level of society, it seems, from the very highest levels of government to any and every level of society after, depravity goes deep and far and wide. Isaiah chapter 1 tells us in verse 23, your rulers are rebels and they are companions of thieves 
Everyone loves a bribe, and they chase after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries, and I will avenge myself on my foes. And Micah Micah chapter 3, we read in verse 11, also of ungodly leaders. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, and her priests instruct for a price, and the prophets divine for money, and they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord in our midst? Calamity surely will never come upon us. But therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. We read in Jeremiah, let me just give you one more, Jeremiah chapter 5 in verse 26, the wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap for my people like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. They have become great and rich. They are fat and sleek. They excel at deeds of wickedness. They don't plead the cause, the cause of the orphan. Shall I not defend the rights of the poor? Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? Will God not punish them? I mean, from the, from the highest level of society to the priest and the prophet and the people, God says they are excelling at deeds of wickedness. How does God respond? And how do we respond? In the book of Common Prayer, here's how they pray through this psalm. Just and merciful, O Lord, are you. See how your children are attacked by the wicked. Hasten the time when the power of evil shall melt away and all of your creation shall rejoice in your holy kingdom. Don't we long for that day when evil melts away? Don't we long for that day when God brings his kingdom and for all of eternity we will rejoice in pure and boundless righteousness? Psalm 58 teaches you how to pray when you're living in such dark times when you don't have words to pray. When you look around and you you see the chaos and the corruption and the calamity and the violence and you think, I don't even have words to pray. Psalm 58 is given by God to give words to us to pray. It is a lament, but it's also a prophetic judgment speech. It is one of what commentators call the imprecatory psalms, and there are seven of them. Sadly and interestingly, Psalm 58 has been removed from some denominations' Bible reading schedules because, quote, some think that it is embarrassing, unloving, and a psalm of cursing. Therefore, we remove it from our scripture reading. I learned that there are pastors and even commentaries who completely skip over this psalm. They ignore it. They ignore other imprecatory verses, but I can't do that. I'm a a Bible preacher. 
And God has given his word, and so we have to look at it together. But as I was reading this psalm and thinking through it with you, I want to preach it in a moment. But look in your outline. I want to give you four introductory thoughts about this song of vengeance that I think is really instructive. Number one, it is inspired. Now, I mean, if I wrote this, you'd think, Jeff, cool down. That, you're angry. But God wrote this. This is inspired by God. Second, it is important. And the reason we know it's important is because the title of the psalm in the Hebrew is a miktam. That's a Hebrew word meaning you gotta preserve it. Put it in indelible letters so that this psalm will never fade away. In other words, keep it close. Keep it on your hearts. Keep it at the, at the forefront of your mind. Keep this psalm near. It's important. Third, it's communal. It is a community song. It is meant to be sung by the congregation. That's why the conclusion is for the choir director. So it's not like you and I should pray this on our own somewhere. It was intended by David to be sung by the congregation like we did tonight. Fourth, it is memorable. This song is memorable. How do we know that? Because it's to the tune of Al-Tashheth. That means it is to be sung. It is to be remembered. You are to hide it in your heart. Like when we sing songs over and over, we learn the words. We hide them in our hearts. So Psalm 58 should be hidden in our heart. Let me just tell you what the psalm is about. David is praying for the punishment for the destruction, for the downfall of the wicked. And I think in particular, David is dealing with the wicked rulers. But I think by application, because of verse 4 and 5, it's not only the rulers. I think it's the wicked in general as well. David is going to expose their evil. He's going to pray for their downfall. And what we need to see in this God-given song are two really important points. Number one, I want you to see with me the grave iniquity of the wicked. Maybe you could think of it like this. Here's the rebellion. Here's the rebellion. Here's what it's all about. And I use the word grave because the word grave means serious. It means solemn. It means severe. This isn't just a, a song about sin. This is serious. This is grave. This is solemn. And the grave iniquity is in verse 1 of the wicked. It is defied. And then in verses 2 to 5, it is described. Look with me at verse 1. Notice how he begins. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? I mean, rhetorical questions. I mean, it'd be like if you go into the middle of the, of the White House, you go into a Senate hearing room, and, and there's these unjust and these wicked laws, and, and you lift up your voice and you say, are you speaking righteously right now? It's a rhetorical question, which I think verse 1 teaches that the heart of any government, by God's design, is to be built on righteousness 
and justice and uprightness. That is the heart of God's design for government. That's what he wants. And yet these leaders in verse 1, do you speak righteousness, O gods? In Hebrew, they're called the mighty ones. Small g gods would work. And end of verse 1, do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? That's, that's a humiliating phrase. You're just the dust creatures. You're, you're the sons of men. You're from Adam. You're, you're from the dust. You, you're so prideful. You're so arrogant, but you're dust. You're weak. And then he describes them, verses 2 to 5. Notice how he begins in verse 2 by answering the question, no, you don't speak righteousness. Maybe you and I can say that. Does our government speak righteousness? Generally speaking, are the laws and the ordinances that are passed, generally speaking, are they righteous? Oftentimes, no. Look at the depravity in verse 2. In your heart you work unrighteousness. They work out their sin in their hearts. That's where it all begins. Verse 2 ends, on earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. They're, they're planning, they're organizing their violence. And then verse 3 tells us where it comes from. I mean, they're estranged from the womb. They speak lies and they go astray from birth. This is the doctrine of original sin. It's the doctrine of original sin that all men and women All human beings are born with a sin nature that we have inherited from Adam. Romans 5.12, Psalm 51 would be proof for that. We've all inherited that from Adam. So we are not sinners because we commit an act of sin. Rather, we sin because we are by nature born into this world sinners. All of us. Every single one of us. And then we read in verses 4 and 5, look at the destructive nature of these ones. Verse 4, they have the venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. I mean, these people are liars and they're poisonous and they're dangerous like a cobra. Our good friend Al Baker, who often fills the pulpit and comes to visit with us, he often says, we all have a cobra heart. Every child who's born in this world, however cute they might be in that diaper, they have a heart of a cobra. They don't hear. They don't respond. They don't obey its master like a snake that doesn't hear the voice of the charmer. It doesn't hear the skillful caster of spell. They are dangerous. They are poisonous. They are hard-hearted. They don't respond. They have a cobra heart. That's the condition of all mankind when we're born. Boys and girls, we have hearts like the hearts of a snake. Dangerous, poisonous. It can kill. Oh, we need a new heart. And that's the beautiful work that only God can do in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We see here in these opening five verses the the corruption. We see the violence. We see the lack of consequences all around us in our nation. We, We see the horrendous refusal on the part of some to protect our country. There is such a lack on the part of some to protect the vulnerable, the weak, the unborn children. There are laws that celebrate the murder of children. I mean, there are sexual scandals all over our nation from the highest levels of society on down. There are lies and deceit and slander. Do we need to give proof to all of that? And yet we ask, where does it come from? I mean, we're living in these days. We would be sick to our stomach if we understood what was really going on in some of these places. And yet we ask, where does it come from? Where does terrorism come from? The lack of righteous, strong, godly leadership in our nation come from? Where does the celebration of abortion come from? Where do evil rulers and unjust decisions come from? Answer, from a cobra heart. From an un regenerate cobra heart. That's why the answer for our nation is the gospel. It's not political reform. It's not judicial change. It's not rioting. It's the gospel. We need God to come from heaven in a spirit-sent revival to bring a God-sent lasting revival. It is a grave condition, and the psalmist acknowledges that. Now, look with me in your outline. If the first was the grave iniquity of the wicked, now number two in your outline, look at the God-oriented imprecation. So all this is going on. How do I pray? How do I pray? How do you pray when the abortionist laughs at the work that she's doing when she mocks you? How do you pray when the political room stands and applaud when they're enacting laws celebrating the abortion and the passing of laws to the murder of the unborn? How do we respond? Prayers of retribution. What is an imprecation? What what is an imprecatory prayer? You see it in your outline. It is a curse. It is a prayer of judgment that that would fall upon the enemies. Now, there's a lot that is probably swirling in your mind. Wait a minute. Matthew 5 says that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's right. But Jesus also taught us in the very next chapter, pray your kingdom come. That's an imprecatory prayer. Because when Jesus comes and he brings his kingdom, it is a bloodbath. Revelation 19. Psalm 35 verse 8 is an imprecatory prayer. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let the man fall into it, into his own destruction. Jeremiah prayed like this, Jeremiah 17, 18, let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, bring upon them the day of disaster, destroy them with double destruction, Jeremiah said. You think, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be damned 
to hell. A curse. I mean, is this only like an Old Testament thing that's done with? No. All scripture is inspired. All scripture is profitable. Now, in verse 1 of our psalm, David is talking to the unjust rulers. In verses 2 to 5, he's talking about the unjust rulers. Now in verse 6, here's the key. He's talking to God. That's the key. When you take matters into your own hands and I'm going to get revenge, that's sin. But when you have a God-oriented perspective... And you leave it to the Lord and you bring it to God in prayer and you submit to God in his timing. That is legitimate. Imprecation. Let me tell you what verses six and following are doing. These are extremely forceful statements. They are intense. They're bloody They're tough, they're rough, they're uncomfortable, they're graphic. The pictures in verses 6 to 9 are of swift, quick, divine punishment. Let me say again, church family, you and I don't take matters into our own hands. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, Romans 12. We, we, don't, we don't retaliate, we don't respond evil for evil, but we can go to God in prayer for these things. So let's look at the pictures of judgment. Verse 6, oh God, here's the urgent, the desperate prayer. Shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out their fangs. Lord, defang them, declaw them. Let them be powerless. Five pictures. Number one. Verse 7, let them flow away like water that runs off. Just like water that just disappears and runs off. May the wicked just quickly disappear and run off. A second image in verse 7, like when he aims his arrows, when he shoots his arrows, may they be like a headless shaft. Let them be ineffective. When they shoot the arrow, it can't penetrate. There's, There's no point Let them shoot the arrow with no spear. Let my enemies be powerless. Third, look at verse 8. Let them be like a snail which melts away like it goes along. You ever seen a snail just melt away on a hot day? It's kind of a slimy, grimy thought. Well... May my enemies melt away into nothing. Next image, number four, he says in verse eight, and let my enemies be like the miscarriages of a woman who never see the sun, like a premature death, like a little baby who would never see the light of day. He dies in the womb. In other words, how much better would it be for my enemies to never be born? Let them die quickly. Wow. Fifth. Fifth, verse 9, before your pots can feel the thorns, God will sweep them away with a whirlwind. The idea is when God brings the storm of wrath, they are quickly blown away. 
Now, look, if you and I read this and we ponder this, look, it's uncomfortable. I mean, this is tough. But what makes praying an imprecatory prayer legitimate? What makes it okay? Why should we pray like this? Answer, because God gave it. Answer, because evil is abounding in our day. Number three, because this is a God-oriented prayer, not a self-motivated prayer. I don't like them, and I want to get even at them, and I've got to retaliate. It's not that. That would be sinful. This is a God-oriented prayer. It is a prayer, listen, for God to do what is right. I think the more that we mature as Christians, listen carefully, I think the more that we pray prayers like this. You say, how could you say that? Because the more that we know and love our God, listen, we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. That's why the godly can rejoice on the day of judgment. Not because we're bloodthirsty and happy that the wicked are going to hell. It's because we're happy that God is doing what is just. We are thankful that God is vindicating his name. But the psalm doesn't end there. Look at verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked... What do you mean the righteous are going to rejoice when the wicked are destroyed? What do you mean I'm going to wash my feet in the blood of the wicked? That's too much. I can't pray that. Some commentators say that. When you interpret the Bible, you have to put yourself back into the context and the milieu of when it was written and how it was written and the culture in which it was written. Verse 10 is warfare language. It's warfare language. It's like God is saying through David that when God's enemies are slaughtered and the victors are walking through the battlefield, we are trekking through the defeated foe's blood. Our God is the conqueror. Our God is the victor. Our God is the king. Our God will do what is right, and he will destroy the wicked. This is, this is warfare language, and because we're on the winning side, we are walking through the battlefield with him as he leads us, as our champion. By the way, did you notice in verse 10 how the godly are described as the righteous? Two things. You're righteous first positionally by faith in Christ. You are righteous positionally as you have a righteousness, not of your own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That makes us righteous positionally, and then that will lead to righteous conduct and righteous living. If if we could just summarize real quick so far, the righteous 
will see the complete defeat of the evildoers. There's a lot of theology there. I do believe that the godly will see the wicked be cast into hell. I believe the Bible teaches that. And we will rejoice in our God as the victor. We will rejoice in our God as the conqueror. We will rejoice in our God as our defender. Revelation 14, Revelation 19 talks about how the godly Rejoice in times like this. By the way, the psalm ends in verse 11. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. You and I can be excited and comforted that there's a reward. There's a reward for the righteous. There is a revenge for the wicked, but there is a reward for the righteous. For those who are righteous in Christ, for those who have been clothed in the merits of Christ, for those who have come to faith in Christ, for those for whom Christ has died, there is a reward for them as they walk in godliness. And the final plea is our hope. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. With all of the murder and the violence and the killing and all of the, all of the unspeakable atrocities that are going on. Genesis 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. To draw this to a close, I want to give us two examples. I want you to think with me of the greatest example of injustice in the history of the world. It is the trials and the anger and the treatment of the Son of God when he was on the earth. It is the classic example of the unjust, ungodly rulers who put the godly Son of God on trial. I mean, it was a mock trial. It it was a circus trial. They brought in false witnesses. They lied. They planned. They plotted. They deliberately contrived to try to betray Jesus and get him killed. They put him under oath illegally in these mock trials. And yet Jesus responded amazingly by by saying, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quoting Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Meaning, I'm the judge. I will come on the clouds of heaven with all authority. You may be the human judges over Jesus in your circus trial, but Jesus will return, he said, and he will be their judge one day, and they will perish in hell. But praise God. Another thing that we have to think about as we draw this to a close. Church family, let's just all acknowledge we deserve God's wrath that's described here. We all have the cobra heart. We all have gone astray from birth. We all are in this situation together. We've been there. We understand this. And yet because Jesus has quenched the wrath of God and he died in my place, all of that fury and that justice of God has been 
averted. It's been propitiated. It has been absorbed. Jesus has taken it all so that you and I can say, hallelujah, not one drop of divine wrath will fall upon my head. Romans chapter 5 tells us in verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. I think of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring and prolong his days. It is the good pleasure of the Lord that prospered in his hand. In 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you're here tonight and you've put your faith in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God. One drop of the wrath of God. He propitiated it. Christ saves us. He shields us. He received it all. That's what it means that he died for our sins, Galatians 1.4. He took the sin and all of the punishment that comes with it. Christian, we, we ought to reflect on that. We, 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 we ought to rejoice, I think, in this often. We, we, we ought to renounce our pride and all of our self-confidence if you're here today trusting in one shred of your self-confidence. You need to come to Christ, believing upon him. We need to revel in his love. This is a psalm for us. Psalm 58 is for us. In fact, in closing, if I could just encourage you, church family, as we, as we close here, keep Psalm 58 handy. It's election year, I'm just saying. We don't know what's going to happen this year, this decade, in our land, or across the world. But you and I will need Psalm 58 in days when depravity is celebrated, when evil is embraced, when good is called evil, and when evil is called good, we need Psalm 58. Don't, don't be afraid to pray it. Show God his own handwriting in this psalm and pray it back to the Lord. Trust the Lord and he will reward the righteous in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look into this precious psalm that you have given to us. Oh God, we are living in times when we could pray these very words upon the wicked. There are many who are wicked all around us, many who are wicked and all across the different spheres of society. Lord, it is appropriate for us to pray this, not in an angry, revengeful way, but in a God-absorbed way. 
May you be glorified. May your justice and your righteousness be put on display. We also want to thank you for saving us from our sins and from the punishment that we deserve in hell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.